Hi, it's Matt. Just before we start the show, I want to tell you about a great live event I've got coming up on the 27th of March. To celebrate 600 episodes of Recruiting Future, I'm going to be hosting a live Ask Me Anything webinar. This is your chance to pick my brain on anything you like, including market trends and predictions, the impact of AI on recruiting, skills-based hiring, the changing role of recruiters, podcasting tips, or even my favourite Scottish tourist destinations and whiskies. Literally, ask me anything. I'll also be joined by some surprise special guests who'll be adding their perspectives to the conversation. You can sign up now by going to mattalder.me slash AMA. That's mattalder.me slash AMA. And I really look forward to seeing you there. That web address one last time. mattalder.me slash AMA. Support for this podcast comes from Avature, the AI-powered total talent platform trusted by 110 of the Fortune 500. From initial candidate engagement through onboarding, talent mobility and performance management, Avature enables organisations to meet their unique needs while delighting and engaging all stakeholders. Just listen to what Nilesh Boote, Director of Recruitment at L'Oreal, has to say. The solutions that we have created are so specific to L'Oreal that it just feels like a team sitting outside of L'Oreal and working for us. If you sign up with Avature, it's for sure signing up with a company who, with whom you will be really able to design solutions the way you want and also embark on a, a, a journey with where innovation is at the core. Visit avature.net and discover why global leaders like L'Oreal Choose Avature to power their recruiting and talent management strategies. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi everyone, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 382 of the Recruiting Future podcast. With everything that's going on in the market at the moment, it's more important than ever to understand the factors that make people feel positive enough to want to either advocate for their employer or feel negative enough to want to leave their job. My guest this week is Marcus Buckingham, Head of Research, People and Performance at the ADP Research Institute. Marcus is well known in the industry for doing pioneering research work. He's just released a report with a new model that measures the impact and performance of HR through the lens of employee experience. The results are fascinating and illustrate just how much influence the performance of HR can have on a company's talent brand. Hi, Marcus, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. And it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. For people who may not have come across your work, could you just introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do? Uh, yeah, I'm a, uh, a researcher by training and by disposition, a, a psychometrician technically, which means I I spent my career figuring out ways to measure things at work that are really important, but that you can't count. So how do you measure talent? How do you measure strengths, engagement, resilience, all sorts of things. Um, first 17 years with the Gallup organization, where obviously I made... Uh, strength finder with um with don clifton who's my mentor there 
and then um, built my own business for quite a few years in the HR tech space, actually, in the um, um, team leader, team member engagement and coaching space. And then um, now joined uh, the ADP Research Institute. So I co-head the ADP Research Institute, which is a, a commitment on the part of ADP to have an independent institute focused on measuring both the broader labor market, um, which is obviously a fascinating subject right now with so much change happening in the world of, of work. And then my focus is all on people and performance. So anything and everything to do globally around um, how people are striving and thriving at work. Um, so that's my focus um, right at the moment. We're going to talk in a second about a, a really interesting piece of work that you've just released. Before we do, though, I just want to kind of go back to your comment about the labour market. Obviously, I, I, I hesitate to use the word unprecedented yet again, but we're going through quite a unique time at the moment when it comes to all things talent. G just give us a, a quick perspective of what you're seeing and what you think some um, what you what you think's going on. Yeah, well, my co-head of the institute is um, an economist called Neela Richardson, and Neela and I have had lots of sort of deep dives into this about what's going on and. A lot of people are calling this the great resignation. Um, certainly over here in the US, we have 10 million job openings and 8 million unemployed. So we've got a, a really odd mismatch in terms of uh, opportunities of, that are there, but also people that seemingly are quitting at unprecedented, to use your term, um, levels. Her point of view actually is that this isn't a great resignation, that we've just had about 18 months of people not leaving. We had quit rates, as they're called, quit rates in the labor market plummeted precipitously in the last 18 months. So you've recently just got a big storing up of normal quitting that didn't happen. Um, so it isn't really a great resignation. It's just a storing up of unresolved quittingness, which is normal, just a normal part of the labor market. But, and we can see that despite the caution around placing too much emphasis on great, re great resignation, we are seeing a reassessment of what it is to work. We are seeing clearly an awful lot of people, whether or not they're quitting, an awful lot of people do seem to be saying to themselves, what is work for in my life? And whether it's coming back to the office or not, um, whether it's joining this organization versus that organization, a lot of people, particularly in the hospitality business, are wondering why I've been devoting so much time and energy to work that perhaps isn't remunerative, doesn't give me the benefits that I expect and I don't like. Um, so it's a, it is actually, I think, a very important time for organizations to start thinking about, much more intentionally thinking about, what do we do to deserve the people that we know our businesses need? That's where we are right now. Absolutely. And I think a big part of that is obviously a, a focus on employee experience and all things all things round around about it and i know that that is very much the focus of the the research report that you've just published tell us about this piece of work what is it how did it come about and how did you put it together well this chief human resources officer for adp is, uh, came to us about 18 months ago and said i i would like perhaps as all good chros should he was like i wanted to see whether we're doing a good job we're going to this pandemic we don't really have uh, rules around this yet. I, I just want to know whether HR is serving our people in the way that it should. And when you when you sort of take that inquiry and dive into it, you realize there is no, we don't have in HR a way to measure the effectiveness of HR. 
there's no standard or agreed upon thermometer to measure it. Um, my grandfather was in HR. My dad was in HR. They did really important and interesting things during their careers. But weirdly, um, you know, I'm 25 years into my career and there, there wasn't a thermometer to measure this. So we were like, well, let's go build it. Let's go build a, a reliable way to measure people's experience of HR to see whether or not, A, we can. And if we can, what does it drive? Does it drive anything real and practical? We don't want to be examining our own navels in the world of uh, HR, just looking at it for the sake of looking at it. We want to look at it in a way that helps us understand what employees then go do. Do they quit more if they have a bad experience with HR, for example? Do they stay longer if they have a good experience with HR? So what is the role of HR in creating positive employee behaviors? That's a question that at the moment HR cannot answer because it doesn't have a way to measure the sentiment of the employee experience of HR. And if we can identify a way to do that, and if we can see what it drives, then of course we can go the other way around and we can see what drives it. What levers, what are the most powerful levers that HR has in order to create a really positive and powerful HR experience for people? So that was the that was kind of the intent of the research. Let's build a thermometer. So we did focus groups, we did interviews, we um, then went out to uh, 25,000 or so people, or 25 different countries, a little over a thousand people per country, a stratified random sample of the, of the workers in those countries, um, and started off with 70 or so items derived from these interviews and focus groups, which is the way in which you build these sort of psychometric instruments. You do qualitative research first, you pull uh, wording and actual language from those instruments, sorry, from those interviews and focus groups. You put together a set of, in our case, it was just under 70 items, 70 questions. And then you go field it in the real world. We fielded it, as I mentioned, to, to 25 different countries. Um, and you basically start, Matt, throwing out all the questions that don't work. Even if you love the questions, if they don't actually have any explanatory power, or if their explanatory power seems to be redundant with other questions, you just start throwing out the ones that don't add any value to your model throw them out, throw them out, throw them out, throw them out. And we ended up with 15, 15 questions, which really quite precisely capture the employee's experience of the HR function. And once we had that, then we could start, as I mentioned, to investigate, well, what does that drive? And then what drives it? Tell us about the model that you've built on the back of that data and those findings. Yeah. So when you culled all of the items that weren't really working, even if you loved them, you end up with 15. And those 15 questions measure five distinct experiences that are clearly independent of your experience of your team leader, your manager, your regular work, as it were, and are discreetly focused on your experience of HR. And the five experiences are hierarchical. It's sort of like a Maslow model, although Maslow's model was just theoretical. He didn't, he didn't have any data underpinning it. This is actually a statistical hierarchy where you sort of have to hit the, the things at the bottom before you can start addressing the things at the top. And right at the bottom is uh, three questions that measure, do I get what I need from HR? Do I just basically get what I need when I need it from HR? Once you hit that, the next level is safety. Do I feel like I can share anything with HR and it's kept in confidences? Do I feel like I have psychological safety and security with, a, a, with, with, a, with, with my HR function. The next level above that is, is know me and value me. 
does HR seem to understand my unique situation as an employee, my unique situation as a person? Does HR help me feel quickly like I belong, but also does it get me? Does it understand me? If you hit that, the next level of experience is growth. Does, does HR play an important part in helping me grow and develop? I obviously have a manager who can help me with some of that. The work itself, I could learn on the job. But is HR helping me think about growing my career and my success? And then if you hit that one, you've hit four. The fifth one is almost like an outcome level at the top, Matt, which is deep trust. Do I completely trust that HR cares about me as an individual? Do I completely trust myself and trust myself to HR? to my people who are supposedly there to help me as a human, hence the name human resources. And so you've got these five experiences, three separate questions measuring each of those experiences. We ask the questions on a scale of one to five, five strongly agree. So what you've got basically is this set of experiences. Anybody answering these 15 questions, we can put you into basically one of three categories. If you're answering positively to all the questions, we put you in a category called value promoting, where you see HR as value promoting. If you're sort of threes and fours, you're in a category called performing, where you see HR as performing. It's doing fine. And then if you're answering negatively to those items, then you're in a category called um, value detracting, where you actually see that your experience of HR actually drains value from your experience as an employee in the organization. Um, and that's kind of the output of this thermometer. We, a, a, anybody who's employed by any size of company, you can ask those 15 items and you can see inside of your organization how many people think that HR is value promoting versus value detracting. And that's kind of the purpose of all of this, Matt, initially, was let's give the entire HR function a reliable and valid and objective way of assessing the experience that HR is creating in the minds and hearts of the employees. It's really fascinating stuff in terms of how it's broken down, how, how you measure it, and the, the information that it provides for the HR function in terms of how they can change or do better or, or keep doing the same thing if, they, if they're doing well. How does it relate to real world actions and, and behaviours? If someone, someone's got a kind of a high score, what are, we, what are we sort of seeing from their employees? Well, the first thing we looked at once we built this metric, the first thing we looked at is, well, what does it relate to? Um, so what we now know is that if you are value promoting, there's three things, there may be more, but there are certainly three things that it strongly relates to in terms of your behavior as an employee. The first is we ask people, do you advocate the company as a place to work to friends and family? And if you are a value promoting if your experience of HR puts you in the value promoting category, then you are far more likely to be advocating the company as a place to work to friends and family. The report itself, which anyone can find on, on the website, adpri.org, um, can give you all of the data and the stats behind this. But basically, it says the experience of HR is very strongly related to your willingness to charge about in your community and say, this company is a great place to work. So for the first time, we're in a position here for the, every HR professional to be able to point to something to show 
HR drives talent brand. HR drives talent brand. If you're not doing HR right, you will be absolutely depleting your ability to find and keep good people, which right now, of course, is just everything. So for any HR practitioner that wants data to be able to sit at the table with the CEO, with the chief marketing officer, with the CFO, and have the confidence to go, wait a minute, compared to any other function around this table, the way in which that we invest in and execute HR drives our ability to attract good people, which right now is everything. We have got to talk about what we're doing in the HR world to ensure that we've got a really positive talent brand. And so that's the first thing that, and, and by the way, because we, we had data on, on engagement, which we know varies team leader by team, by team, by team, by team, by team, we can actually say, well, how overlapping is your experience of HR with your experience of your team and your team leader? Maybe, maybe these things are just redundant of each other. It turns out that they're related. There's a, there's a 51% overlap, actually. But that leaves 49% of your experience of HR and your ability to advocate the company to friends and family is experienced simply through HR, independent of whatever. You may love your team. You may love your team leader. But if you have a value-depleting experience with HR, you will be charging around your community saying, look, I love my boss, but don't come work here. And this, for the first time, is what CEOs have a line of sight to. Are we, through the HR function, building value, um, promoting people who will then go out and advocate the company? So that was the first big finding. And of course, the corollary to that, we asked people, are you actively interviewing for other jobs? If you're value promoting, if you see HR value promoting, you're much less likely to be actively looking for new employment. And then because we could feel this inside of ADP, because ADP is like a 60,000-person Petri dish, we could actually see whether people, three months after they took this particular thermometer, did they stay or did they leave? And we can see, unquestionably, if you see HR as value depleting, you are much more likely not just to say that you're going to leave, but that you then actually do. Now, this is just one use case inside of ADP, but it's a pretty bloody big Petri dish. And we'll continue to study this, but it sure seems as though your experience of HR not only drives your talent brand, but it also drives actually behaviorally, does it drive people to walk out the door? And it does. It's an incredible finding to be able to really nail that down and prove it, if you like. But it's also not completely surprising and i think it's great to to be able to as you say to be able to have the data and the evidence to back that up a quick message from our sponsor winolo hi everyone i want to tell you about winolo that's w-o-n-o-l-o winolo stands for work now locally winolo enables businesses to find quality workers for on-demand seasonal short-term and long-term work Ditch the bulky paperwork and interview process and use Winolo to find quality workers fast and get work done even faster. With flexible workers and no platform fees, you can save on operating costs, meet demand and maximise earnings with ease. Winolo is available in over 100 markets, including Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, New York and Seattle. Get workers who are ready to work and spend less time finding them with Winolo. Go to www.winolo.com slash pod. That's www.wonolo.com slash pod and take the stress out of finding workers. 
one of the other interesting things for, for me in the report is you also identify the sort of characteristics of, of, of HR functions that, that have high scores and what sort of moves the needle the, the most. Can you talk us through those? Yeah, well, I mean, by the way, you're right. You know, intuitively you sort of go, well, we've all been, for those of us that have been in the world of work, you go, gosh, yeah, I mean, I, I do love my team leader, but if I'm working for a company where the entire HR function, whether it's the simplest things like, you know, what's my status or um, what's uh, my withholding going to be for taxes or uh, all the way to what are my health benefits or I've just got promoted, what new things have got to change in my world. If all of that is handled really, really, really badly, then so it doesn't matter how good your team leader is, your experience of the company leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. So you're right, Matt. Like it, intuitively, you go, yeah. It's just we've never had the data to go, uh, <laughs> it's very discreet and distinct the effect of HR, independent of anything else, it has a big role to play. So having that data is a wonderful benchmark to sort of start with for any company that wants to build its talent brand, which is just, you know, everybody. Um, In terms of your question, though, what's super intriguing, like once you have that data, you can start going, well, what drives it? What drives people to see HR as value promoting and thereby increasing the company's talent brand? And the two things that really... Three or four, but the two big things that really leap out, Matt, were super counterintuitive and fly completely in the face of the mega trends that are going on right now in the world of HR. The first is we ask people, do you have a single point of contact in HR? Do you have multiple points of contact in HR? Do you have no points of contact in HR? And it's all sort of mediated through some other uh, technological process. Um, if you said you had a single point of contact, you are far more likely to be value promoting, far more likely. So single point of contact seems to be, and will continue to be for the next 10 years, whether you're a big company or a small, how do we make people feel like there is somebody, and maybe somebody plus a piece of tech, but some, to use an Americanism, some sort of quarterback who knows me, Yes, the moment I ask that person a question, they may send me off to some center of excellence, like I've got an insurance question, or I've got a promotion question, or I've got a tax withholding question, I've got a benefits question. Yeah, we're okay being handed off. It's just we do need to have somebody who sees us as a whole human, somebody who needs to know us as a whole person, because we are a whole person. It's a bit like particularly over here in the US in healthcare, where if we're not quite careful, we're not seen as a whole patient. We're seen as the gallbladder in room 206. And we're not, we, we don't really feel that there's a person in the hospital who's seeing us as a whole person. Same is true in companies today. We've, we've had big trends in HR of going to siloed, parallel centers of excellence. So if I have an insurance question, I get shuffled off over here. If I've got um, a benefits administration question, I'm shuffled off over here. But there's nobody in the middle of it all. There's no one going, I know you, Marcus. So single point of contact. And of course, I'm not suggesting that we go back 20 years to HR generalists, and that, that's, that's not going to happen. But that does mean that we ought to be thinking really coherently about everybody who comes to work in our organization is a whole human and sees themselves as a whole human. And they don't like it when they get split up into a bunch of different aspects simply because that's the the most cost-effective way to organize HR. Well, sorry, um, maybe that worked two years ago. That doesn't work anymore. For you to be able to offer a human 
way of coming to work and feeling what it feels like to work as a human, you can't split me up into different aspects just because your financial model makes sense that way. Well, you can. It's just you're going to deplete your talent brand. So it's a huge call to arms for every CHRO in the world to go, the way that we've been going and the way that we've been structuring ourselves doesn't work for humans. It might work for an accountant. It doesn't work for humans. So that's the first big one. And then if you'd like, I mean, the, the, the second big one, which is sort of a corollary to this, is we asked everything we could possibly ask about in terms of why you might have called HR in the last year. Everything from employee relations issues to good things like I have just been promoted to um, did you have a formal onboarding? Did you not? Um, did you have uh, some sort of performance management that's formal? Did you not? Like all sorts of things. Trying to figure out of all the different things that you experience with HR, which are the most important in terms of driving value, promoting feelings about HR. And <laughs> in the end, when you sliced it and diced it, and this was annoying for me because I, I kind of like finding the one big lever or something, but there was no big lever. The only thing that we found is the more frequent the interactions you had with HR, the more likely you are to see HR as value promoting. So in a world where the big trends in HR is to disintermediate HR, to put technology purely as the interface for the employee and have them self-serve pretty much as much as we can possibly get them to self-serve so that they don't have to have any interactions with HR. That's the world we're living in at the moment. This research would say that is a huge underutilization of the HR function. Done really well, each interaction point with HR is an opportunity for that particular person to feel one of those five experiences I mentioned earlier. Each interaction is a chance to make me feel safe or heard or valued or help to grow and develop. Every one of those things is what I'm searching for when I come to work. And HR, done well, can give me those feelings. And when I have those feelings, I will charge about my community and advocate this organization as a place to work. So in a sense, every interaction point doesn't just have to be seen as a cost center or as a friction center to be reduced. And that really is what HR has been dealing with these last few years. Reduce friction, reduce cost, reduce friction, reduce cost, which is fine. I mean, that's fine. We should reduce friction. But seen through a different lens, each interaction with HR is actually an opportunity to create value for that particular human to make me feel those one of those five experiences. Gosh, if we thought about it in that, with that lens, as well as the reduced friction and cost, we might be doing some things really, really differently in the world of HR. At the moment, we aren't. We are simply trying to disintermediate HR. And that's a waste. It's a miss. You've been out talking about about your findings and about this piece of work to sort of various audiences over the last over the last couple of weeks. What reaction have you got from the HR professionals that you've been that you've been talking to? I think two different kinds of reaction. The first, it sort of mirrors yours a little bit. The first is like, you know, I always thought that in a way that's different than the finance department or the marketing department or the real estate department of my organization, I always thought HR was different. I always knew that we had some sort of contribution to make to the humans that work here that was meaningful and powerful. So 
in a sense, the first reaction has been, well, thanks. Good. Now we've got some data that actually says unequivocally, because you, you've been around the HR space, Matt, a long time. You know that the function in general can sometimes be quite insecure as a function. And we sit around the XCOM table and we sort of wonder if we have a right to be there. And when the CEO turns to us and says, you know, give me some data on how we're doing with our people. I don't know, maybe we bring out our first year voluntary turnover numbers, or maybe we bring out our time to fill numbers for new jobs, or maybe we'll bring out a once a year employee survey or something. We haven't ever really had anything which shows we as a function drive something massively important to this organization's ability to thrive today and grow tomorrow, namely talent brand. HR drives talent brand. No one's had that data. So to have it now is like, Yay. And and we're going to continue to try to figure out ways, Matt, to just offer this thermometer across the entire world of HR. Because if I think we feel if HR functions have this thermometer available to them, they'll start making better decisions about what to do that's right for humans. So that's the first sort of reaction, I suppose. Yeah, sort of always suspected that, but thank goodness now we've got some way to prove it. Um the second is, oh gosh, now that we can see that every interaction point is potentially a source of value or potentially a source of decreased value, what are these touch points? What should we do to structure HR so that we maximize each human being's desire to feel seen and heard and known through the HR function? At the moment, we've been on a headlong rush to completely disintermediate the function. And some of that's good because it does reduce friction. But what have we been missing? Well, we've been missing all this stuff about, well, what does a human being want when they call up HR? What do they really want? How many moments are like that when this person calls up during the course of a year? Have we really focused attention on each of those moments to make sure that we are making that person feel one or more of those five experiences that I mentioned earlier? And so, that reaction is more like, oh, man, we've underutilized. In a sense, we've sort of strip-mined our entire function, and it's time to stop strip-mining it. And so it's kind of in a little bit of a wake-up call around, a bit like banks, a bit like financial services institutions have when they decided that ATMs, or as we call them over here, uh, cash point, you know, is going to replace bank tellers. And then they realized that, no, 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 customers, they're quite happy with getting their perfect cash delivered to them through a wall, but they still want to talk to someone about money because money's fraught. So they want a personal banker to talk to them about their mortgage or talk to them about their loan because people feel anxious about anything to do with money. And so there's, there's probably more personal bankers today in retail banks than there ever was bank tellers 15 years ago. Um, and that's because these banks are trying to figure out ways to make a particular customer feel cared for. I think HR is right at that point the fight that banks were 15 years ago, as we're all now trying to figure out how do we how do we use technology wisely, but let's not use it to replace or imagine it could ever replace 
an individual human's feeling of being seen and heard by another human. That sort of brings me nicely on to my final question, which is what's going to happen next? If we're having this conversation in a, in a, in a couple of years' time, what would we be talking about? What do you think the future looks like? Oh, gosh. Well, I tell you what, if I knew the exact answer to that, Matt, then you and I wouldn't be on this podcast. We'd be, <laughs> we'd be going to create the perfect future. So anything I'm going to say here is obviously conjecture. Um, I do think, by the way, just sort of a little sidebar, you know, if you and I had something to go do tomorrow, it would be like, well, let's go start an HR transformation company. <laughs> let's, let's go do that because helping, helping companies think through the things that I was just talking about is going to be a fascinating yet next five years for the HR function. How do we create these five experiences? How do we do it intentionally using tech sensibly and using people where tech can't really be as human as we want it to be. How would we do that? Like that's a really interesting question. The bigger the the, the sort of the bigger thing I think that we're going to see, and this is very much an I think. I, I don't you know I don't have data that proves this, but certainly over here, like we just had the CEO of Starwood Hotels today say, uh, we need the government to pay people to come back to work for my company because we can't find enough people to fill the positions. And that he's just one example of many CEOs saying the same thing. We can't find enough people. And so now what research like this shows is, and I'm going to say it bluntly, I don't quite mean it this way, but it's like, hey, organizations, you don't deserve these people. You don't deserve them. You've built loveless workplaces. You've built inhuman workplaces. And to some, in some places, the HR function has been utterly complicit in building workplaces that don't see the individual human as the moral starting point of it all. They see the human as a mechanism for getting a bunch of stuff done. They design boring jobs that are not well-paid, and then they wonder why people don't now want to rush back into them. Well, you've designed a whole bunch of boring, inhuman jobs. As Just to take one case in point, we have a lot, just like you do with the NHS in the UK, you've got a lot of PTSD, a lot of stress, a lot of burnout in doctors and nurses. And a lot of effort being put into try to, you know, support them and clap for them. But all of that's a bit rubbish, really, when you look at the, the reporting structures inside of hospitals, where you've got nurse supervisor to nurse ratios of 1 to 30, 1 to 40, 1 to 60, one nurse supervisor to 60 nurses. And then you wonder why those 60 nurses get burned out when there's no possible way that poor supervisor can know each person, how they're feeling, what they're going through, what they felt yesterday, what they're worried about tomorrow. You can't do that when it's one to 60. And yet humans, real humans, need to feel seen in life. Certainly, they need to be seen at work. We know that. From data, we actually know that. The fastest way to drive your retention numbers up is to have frequent light-touch attention between a team leader and a team member, frequently, because humans need that. We need to have attention. We've got structures in place in companies where the jobs were designed boringly by people who assumed that the job was hateful. So they designed sort of boring, loveless work and then built structures that might make sense financially, but don't make sense for humans. One to 60, how about call centers? One to 70 in call centers. Well, I'm sorry. What we're going to be talking about in three years' time, Matt, is how this time created a wake-up call for companies. If you design jobs that are deeply disrespectful to the humans in the jobs, they won't come work for you and you won't deserve them. And so whether or not they make the structures you built make financial sense 
is irrelevant if you can't find enough people to fill the chairs, which right now you can't. So it's not, it's not going to be business as usual. It's going to be a big sea change in, in what does a company need to show people to prove that it deserves them. And I think that's an open question right now. It certainly is. And I really couldn't agree with you, re- agree with you more on that. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting next few years, certainly. As a, as a sort of last final point, you, you, you mentioned earlier where people could find the report. Could you, could you tell us again where, where people can go to download the report and where they can go to find out more about you? Yeah. I mean, uh, the ADP Research Institute is this independently funded institute whose purpose is objective, unbiased research. We will always think that it's like it's very hard today to know where to go to find out what's true in a way that's unbiased. So the institute is set up to serve the HR function, to serve leaders in the world of work with hopefully useful, relevant, valid data about the world of work. ADPRI.org is where you can go. If you want the 15-minute executive summary of this particular piece of research, you can find it there. If you want the 45-minute, 60-page technical report, you can find it there too. Um, Also, if you go to Marcus Buckingham uh, on Instagram, I tend to, that's where I put my stuff out mostly, sort of uh, through Instagram because it's easier. We do actually do like once a month, we'll do for HR practitioners, we'll do a deep, deep dive into some of these data and what it means. Um, not that we haven't covered some cool stuff on this podcast, Matt, but once a month, we'll, um, we'll invite people. So if you want to stay connected to us, go to adpri.org and there's a place where um, you can just stay connected and get to, to know about both upcoming webinars that we're doing or upcoming research that we're doing, uh, all in the service of an HR function that we hope simply has access to really good, reliable data about, about all of these wonderful changes that are going on in the world of work. Marcus, thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure, Matt. My thanks to Marcus Buckingham. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us by searching for Recruiting Future. You can search all the past episodes at recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to the mailing list to get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time and I hope you'll join me. This is my show. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analysts at Chiffre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics and hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners 
encouraged to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts.